Welcome to Traveling Culturati, where we explore cultures and share travel news, travel tips, destinations, and travel chats. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Well, hey there, fellow Culturati. Javon Harley here your host and travel pro for Traveling Culturati. Make sure you head on over to the website, travelingculturati.com. And while you're there, make sure you join the travel club so that you can go to some fantastic destinations with a great group of folks. Again, the website is travelingculturati.com. So go ahead and make sure you join in on the fun. Well, today I'm chatting with freelance travel journalist and photographer, Takesha Burton, a.k.a. Wanderlust Mama. She's sharing her favorite black history sites in America with us. You may remember her from before. We had her on when she talked about her family's adventures throughout the United States and actually the world, too. And again, today she's sharing some of her favorite black history sites in the United States. We'll also have Javon's Travel Minute and, of course, the Culture Report. But right now, I've got some travel news. And certainly at the top of the list is what's currently happening in Israel and Gaza. The fighting continues in Israel with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu declaring that the country is now at war. Most international flights have already canceled flights in and out of Israel, and governments are revising travel guidance for those heading to the region. The situation remains very fluid, and all information is subject to change, of course, but here's what you should know following the current events. Among the locations Hamas has claimed it is targeting the Ben Gurion International Airport, which is Israeli's international hub located just outside of Tel Aviv. Now, despite the fighting, Ben Gurion's website says that the country's largest and busiest airport was still open and operational. This was according to the previous week. The country's second largest airport, Ilan and Asaf Rahman International Airport in the southern Red Sea city of Eliat, also says it plans to continue services. For Israeli airline El Al, the country's flag carrier, issued a statement earlier in the week saying it would continue to operate as usual. Now, anyone who wishes to cancel their trip is eligible for a voucher, which they can obtain by filling out the form on El Al's website. The airline also has an emergency hotline for customers affected by the situation. Which international airline flights have canceled flights into Israel? Well, just about all have. International airlines have announced that they will cut their services to Israel dramatically as the situation evolves. Delta Airlines said it is canceling all flights to and from Tel Aviv for the rest of the month, but that it will work with the U.S. government as needed to assist with the repatriation of U.S. citizens who want to return home. American Airlines has canceled all flights to and from Israel's main international airport through December 4 as a result of the current operating environment. And the airline operates flights from New York's JFK International Airport to Tel Aviv's Ben Gurion International Airport and will continue to work closely with partner airlines to offer assistance to those looking to exit Tel Aviv with safety and security remaining the highest priority. United Airlines has also canceled direct flights, stating the safety of our customers and crews are our top priority. A representative for United said in a statement that we are closely monitoring the situation and we are adjusting flight schedules as required. The airline confirmed that flights would remain suspended until conditions allow them to resume. Cruises are also affected. Many major cruise lines have had to make last-minute adjustments ahead of planned stops in Israel, and the statements added that customers on the affected sailings would be eligible for full refunds. So check any services that you're using, airline or cruise lines, check their websites for information. And foreign governments are saying that they've updated their guidance on travel to Israel and Gaza following the recent events. The situation in Israel continues to be unpredictable, according to the U.S. Embassy in Israel, in a statement which advised American citizens 
in Israel to contact the embassy in Jerusalem or the consulate in Tel Aviv. And some tour operators have canceled departures until the end of 2023, as things are still very fluid and unpredictable at present time. Well, if you want to know which airports are more global in flight connections than anywhere else in the world, I have that information for you. At the top of the list is Heathrow Airport in London. They have more global connections than any other airport in the world. Number two is JFK. Number three is Schiphol in Amsterdam. Four is Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia. Number five is Tokyo International Airport, also known as Haneda. Number six is Frankfurt International Airport. Seven is Istanbul Airport in Turkey. Eight is Incheon International Airport in South Korea. Number nine, Charles de Gaulle Airport. And number 10, Chicago O'Hare. What's interesting is that Atlantis Airport is not on this list. Again, this is based on global connections. This was a new study that was done by J.D. Power. Now, if you're thinking about Hartsfield-Jackson Atlanta International Airport, they did rank highest for passenger volume, but just not in this particular category. Here's some good news. Tuskegee Airmen Museum and Center for Aviation Technology Training prepares black youth for careers in aviation. In 1941, the Tuskegee Airmen became the first all-black flying crew in the U.S. military during World War II, also known as the Red Tails. Did you see that movie? I like that. The 992 fighter pilots executed more than 1,500 missions and 15,500 forays, defeating 261 enemy aircraft and winning more than 850 medals. Despite their success, founding CEO of Hosanna House, Leon Haynes, felt that young people, as well as the broader public, just did not know much about the airmen's history. In 2022, he opened the Center for Aviation Technology and Training, known as CATT, and Tuskegee Airmen Museum at the organization's event center to expose youth to not only the history of the Red Tails, but the opportunities available to them in aviation. He stated, we have a cockpit fight trainer, which is our main simulator. Children can take off and they can land. We have wearable wings, imagination mirrors, and an airport play table. Also stating a lot of children have never been to the airport. They've never been in this setting or sat in an airplane seat. All of a sudden we're triggering things. We have to empower our young people so they don't get fearful of what they can do. The Tuskegee Airmen Museum was created through a collaboration with the Smithsonian Institution's Black Wings, American Dreams of Flight exhibition through the museum's traveling exhibition service. Both the museum and the Aviation and Technology Training Center received design support from the Children's Museum of Pittsburgh. Now, CATT also enables high school students to get a FAA or Federal Aviation Administration certification to become commercial drone pilots. Soon, the Tuskegee Airmen Museum will travel to other states like Massachusetts, North Carolina, and Alabama. And Haynes said it is booked through 2026. Now, you know that bucket list that many people work on? Uh, yeah, I like to call it life list. I always say that because bucket list seems just so, I don't know, macabre. <laughs> but there's a new report that was put out by Kuoni, a Britain-based travel company who recently did a survey to rank the world's best bucket list destinations. They conducted a comprehensive analysis by going through Google search data for 119 bucket list places to visit in 219 countries. And these aren't just destinations. Some of them are places to see. For example, the Mona Lisa is on the list coming in at number three. But the number one destination on the list that topped the global list is the Maldives located in the Indian Ocean. 
Coming in second is Niagara Falls, bordering, of course, Canada and the United States. As I mentioned, the Mona Lisa in Paris, created by Leonardo da Vinci. And you can see the Mona Lisa at the Louvre Museum in Paris. Just know that it's a small painting and it's where the biggest crowd is gathering. So make sure you get your position to see it. Visiting Bora Bora in French Polynesia, climbing the Statue of Liberty in New York City, Seeing the Northern Lights, that one is certainly on my list. I would absolutely love to do it. Just have to bundle up to do that. Visit Stonehenge in England. A visit to the Taj Mahal in Agra, India. It's one of the UNESCO World Heritage Sites. Seeing Times Square. And if you're brave, you can go during New Year's Eve to see the New Year's Eve ball drop celebration. The Burj Khalifa in Dubai. Now, the Burj Khalifa in Dubai, which is United Arab Emirates, is the world's tallest skyscraper. And a visit to Pompeii, ancient Roman city in southern Italy, which was famously buried by the eruption of Mount Vesuvius in AD 79, visiting the Sagrada Familia in Barcelona. Visit the Cinque Terre in Italy along the Italian Riviera. Big Ben in London, Chichen Itza in Mexico, also a World Heritage Site the Mexican Yucatan Peninsula and Mayan ruins or in the Mayan city. Trek the Himalayas, yes, in Nepal, if you're adventurous enough to do that. Visiting Alcatraz in San Francisco, known as The Rock, the Bay of San Francisco. The White House in Washington, D.C. Floating in the Dead Sea. And you can do that in either Israel or Jordan. The Dead Sea is one of the world's saltiest bodies of water. And to admire the views at Yosemite. Lastly, Black Traveler's significant contribution to stimulating the U.S. economy is being honored with a national day. Black Americans spent around $109.4 billion on leisure travel in 2019 making up about 13.1% of the U.S. leisure travel market. Now, an organization is making sure the group is getting its just due for their economic impact. The Black Travel Summit recently announced National Black Travel Day on November 11, an observance time they say is dedicated to celebrate, honor, and uplift the global black travel community. The date was chosen by the Black Travel Summit founder, Anita Francois, to commemorate the birth date of Jamaican-American pilot Captain Barrington Irving, the first and only black person to complete a solo global flight mission. Black Travel Summit was founded with the aim of elevating and strengthening the presence of the black travel community each day and every day. In tandem with the holiday announcement, BTS's annual in-person conference takes place from October 20th to 22 in Miami, Florida. Just wish it wasn't in Florida. Yeah. The weekend will feature remarks from tastemakers in travel leaders, a yacht brunch and gala among the other activations. Well, the NAACP has issued a travel alert and warning about traveling to Florida. Yeah. For black travelers may not be safe. That's all I've got for travel news. And when I come back, we'll have Javon's Travel Minute and a conversation with Takesha Burton, the wanderlusting mama on her favorite black history sites. I'm Javon Harley, the Traveling Culturati on Sirius XM 141 HUR Voices. This is Traveling Culturati. We explore cultures and destinations. We share travel news and travel tips to keep you well-informed and prepared for your next travel adventure. So go ahead and up your travel game with Traveling Culturati. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Welcome back to the Traveling Culturati. I'm your host and travel pro, Javon Harley. Make sure you head on over to the website, TravelingCulturati.com. And while you're there, join the Travel Club so that you can go to some fantastic places with us. And, you know, we do have some fantastic places that we're going to for 2024 and 25. And boy, has 23 been a ride. I know we're still in it and we're still going. (laughs) And now, Javon's Travel Minute. 
If you're checking a bag, these are the things you need in your carry-on bag in case your checked bag is delayed or lost. One, your toiletry bag. On your flight to your destination, always pack your toiletry bag with you so you'll have your hygiene products. An extra pair of clothes. This should be an entire outfit, including undergarments. This way, you'll have clean clothes right away and can send what you wore on the plane out to be laundered. If you've had a bag delayed on an international flight, you know your bag may not arrive for two days or more. Your medications. This is always, always, always have your prescribed. And I like to also keep my over-the-counter medications with me. This is a must. Grooming products for hair and makeup. Electronics. Your laptop, cell phone, camera, and all the cables that go with them and a portable charger. For several reasons. One, you want to have these items with you. They're probably among some of your most valuable, and airlines typically will not insure or replace these. So you definitely want to have them with you. And having that cell phone with you, being able to charge it is going to be very important. And think of your carry-on bag as a survival bag in the event your checked bag doesn't make it. This is Javon, and that was your Travel Minute. Chatting with me today is Takesha Burton. She's a freelance travel journalist and photographer. We met and had Takesha on Traveling Culturati to feature her family adventures, as she's also known as the Wanderlust Mama or Mama Wanderlust. Today, she's sharing with us her experience and tips for finding and exploring Black history through travel. Hello and welcome back, Takesha. Hello, hello. Thank you for having me again. Absolutely. It's always a pleasure to chat with another person who likes to talk about travel. Journalism major, but also African-American studies. So what was your journey from journalism and African-American studies to travel? When I was an undergrad, I loved both journalism. I like stories. I love history in general. And I kept coming back to my love of the African-American experience in America. So I was taking classes and eventually I realized I could just continue and get another degree in it while I was there. So I went ahead and forayed into being a television news writer and continued that way, writing and editing. To this day, I still have a writer-editor position with the federal government. However, my side hustle is travel. And I travel with my children. We talked about that before. And when I travel with them, we explore history and culture through our travels. It's a great way to teach them about history and culture. So whenever we travel, wherever we go, we're always looking for the history of the place. And I love that you share that with your children. And yes, when you were on before, you talked about family travel and giving some tips on family travel. It wasn't that long ago that we spoke, but what are the ages of your children? My son is nine and my daughter six. How do they respond to the travel that's more related to history and specifically Black history? It depends on the destination and the depth of the information. But for the most part, I can see their eyes light up when they're learning something and they'll bring things up later on once we've returned home. And they'll talk about, we can discuss different issues that have happened throughout history. We can discuss how that's impacted the country, how that's impacted us. And it's a wonderful way to have like a living history and they see it as something that's tangible instead of something that's just in a book. So I think it sticks with them longer because they're experiencing it through museums and living tours or live open spaces like in Williamsburg, things like that. When they can see living history, it sticks with them better. You touched on it a little bit, but I was going to ask, especially as Black children, how do you think that shapes them and how they see themselves? Oh, I think it's very important for them to get their history from us as parents, because it's not the onus of the school districts to give them their history. So I think it shapes them tremendously. I know that they were not aware that Egypt was in Africa and we visited Egypt last summer and it was transformative for myself and I'm sure for them, they'll never forget it. And it was just really interesting to see them learn about our history and culture coming from the continent. Now we still have to go to Sub-Saharan Africa 
and we'll see how that works. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> it's going to be a fun trip. Sounds like it. Sounds like it. I love scrolling through your blog and reading the different experiences that you've had with your family in the United States, outside of the United States. But a couple of them really stood out for me, or a few really stood out for me. One was the 20 Black History Museums in the United States to visit. So how did you discover them or come up with that list of 20? Let me just say that of course, Black history is American history, so it's everywhere you go. It's not hard to find if you know where to look. In living in the Washington, D.C. area, we have the National Museum of African American History and Culture. But I realized that not everybody has a Smithsonian Institute down the street. So I decided to compile a list based on wherever people are going or popular destinations like Chicago, Atlanta, New York. There's so many different museums with different focal points that are super interesting and they're varied. And not all Black history is the same depending on the region. Like I'm going to Seattle in a couple of weeks and I'm really interested to see what Black history is like on the West Coast. So it's different depending on where you are. So I think it's always fun if you're into history to check out the local Black history museums wherever you go. I think outside of Oakland, you don't really think much about Black history on the West Coast, but there's a wealth of Black history mm -hmm. there. Why are these museums a must visit? Personally, I feel that in order to really get deep into a destination, it's nice to see how people have thrived, people that look like me have thrived in that region. It gives me a taste of the DNA of the location. So... I went to a small town, Thomasville, Georgia, and I went to the Jack Hadley Museum, Black History Museum. And it was there that I realized how agricultural technology changes impacted sharecroppers and how those impacts changed the lives of the people in that region. Now, I may have been able to find that in a bigger museum, but I might have just walked past it. So when you go to like the smaller museums or a museum in a certain agricultural area, it's going to have a totally different perspective. Yeah, especially when they focus on a more singular uh, event or person versus it being part of a larger picture of what that history is going to be. So if it wasn't a major event, it may not have an exhibit space that's going to really draw your attention to it. So let's talk about some of those that were on okay. the list. We don't have to go through all 20 of them, but let's just talk about some of them that were on the list. Is there one in particular that surprised you the most? One that surprised me the most, I told you about that Jack Hadley one. That was really interesting. I was surprised to hear that there was the Northwest African American Museum in Seattle. I know we're there, but I was just surprised. I don't know why I was surprised. I'm with uh, you on it. Yeah. <laughs> And the Whitney Plantation was a shocker for me. So a lot of people have issues about visiting plantations. And I feel that if the history is presented in a holistic way, that it's okay. And the Whitney Plantation in Wallace, Louisiana is doing something super special. And they're basically telling the story of the 3,000 enslaved people that once lived there. That's like the focus of that tour. I haven't visited yet, but it is certainly on my list. Well, I did get a chance to visit it a couple of years ago, and I know they also suffered from one of the hurricanes, too. So they were in the process of rebuilding a lot of things. But you're right in the sense that it's one of few, if not the only one, that is really focusing on those who were enslaved at the plantation. I mean, plantation tours have been a big topic of discussion mm -hmm. over the last few years, because I think prior to that, people really forgot what plantations were mm -hmm. <laughs> and how they had these contrasting lives on the plantation. And so plantations were really put in these spaces where they forgot completely about the enslaved that were there and people were having weddings and events. It was event space and yeah, function space. Absolutely. And people rarely, if at all, really talked about those who were enslaved. And then that changed. And then some people were really appalled by it. Some people were offended by it. Some people were shocked by it and others embraced it. And then I think there was a, some have even been turned into Airbnbs. The I saw that one. That <laughs> I was, mean. <laughs> <laughs> the enslaved quarter Airbnb, that was crazy. Yeah, it's like, who would even want to sign up for that? But again, this is the reason that I really wanted to chat with you about this, because we have to talk more about Black history. It's a shame we have to say Black history because it is part of the fabric of the United States and the world, really. And so it should just be part of the history. 
And I'm always surprised when I'm driving along this highway in the middle of nowhere and I see a placard or a sign that says Black History Museum in that area mm, or yep. a Black History placard. And you think, oh, okay. <laughs> you know, and you yeah. would never have expected it there. What are a couple of the ones that you have visited and what were your takeaways? I really, really love the Lorraine Motel in Memphis. It just gives you chills being there. I went alone at first because I was in Memphis for a conference. And then I returned with my family and to watch my children, you know, it was very somber and it was heavy, but I got to explain to them and they got to see where Dr. King was killed, what it meant and how the city reacted. And to just balance the levity, we also went across the city to the Stax Museum. So Black history doesn't always have to be heavy. Stax Museum was absolutely fun. We danced, Stax Museum is about soul music in the Memphis area. And it was just a beautiful way to have fun and learn about soul music and the music and the sound of Memphis. Yes. Well, the history of music and how it has evolved and how some of the beginnings have just stood a test of time throughout <laughs> it all. And then we realize how it impacts us today and how we bring that into the future. Any others you'd like to share with us? Oh, wow. If we're still on the music topic, if it's okay, I'd love to talk about uh, the Little Richard Museum and the Otis Redding Museum in Macon, Georgia. I was blown away by those. There's a Tubman Museum in Macon, Georgia as well, Tubman African-American History Museum. That was fascinating because it had like African art and there was a whole exhibit about Black inventors. I didn't take my kids to that one. I was there alone, but I was shocked by some of the stuff I didn't know that African-Americans invented. So it was really, really cool to see. And it was my first time also, they had a preserve whites only water fountain. Ah. And I had read and seen pictures, but never seen it in real life. Repeat that one again, because I think I have to go there and visit that one. It's called the Tubman African-American Museum. Okay. In Macon, Georgia. It's right behind their little tourism board off the main street. It's a yellow building and it's filled with African art. They have a cute little summer program for the local kids. The Otis Redding Foundation is also doing amazing things with children and music in Macon as well. They're growing musicians out of Macon. When I went into that museum, it's super small, but I had never seen the telegraphs, uh, the people who were sending their condolences to his wife. And as I was reading those condolences, his wife was sitting in the museum. Oh, wow. That, that must was, have been that was, super special. Yeah, it was very special. So the Lorraine Museum, Stax Museum, anything in Macon dealing with music is amazing. I don't know. <laughs> There's so many. <laughs> yeah. I thoroughly enjoyed the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum in Kansas yes. City, Missouri. That one, I, as a woman, was drawn to the women's stories because I had heard of some of those greats from the Negro Leagues, but I had never heard of the women. I guess never even knew that we had female Negro League teens. So we had our own version of the movie. And the movie immediately came to mind, A League of Their Own, but the color lines were drawn then and Black women weren't allowed to play in the Women's Baseball League. And so, yeah, very few know that there was a league for Black women. So that's awesome. And you talked earlier about Little Richard, and there's a current documentary on Little Richard, and his story is fascinating. And this is what I love so much about these singular focused museums or small museums. And sometimes they're someone's personal collections. Also fascinating. There was another post you did that I thought was very interesting. Black history museums that you explore at home. Right. So tell us about that. Well, that was born out of during the pandemic. I was thinking of all the things I can do to train or teach my kids to augment their education that they were getting virtually. And I wanted to go on a virtual field trip. So I started doing some research and realized that there were quite a few museums that you can do virtual tours for. So I just said, oh, I think some other moms might be interested in this. And I just compiled a list and put it on the blog. And the links still work. The virtual tours are still there. There's some, the National Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington, D.C., they have like STEM programs for kids to actually like a little bit of a curriculum there. So those are very helpful for homeschoolers or people just looking to add to what they're teaching their children at home. 
So it's not just really for tourism, it's very educational based. Absolutely. And I think they learned that virtual space didn't have to be just because we couldn't get there, but yes. an extension of their program. And I think a lot of museums decided to keep their virtual tours and expand upon them. And as you said, they're very much educational tools. Yes. And if I could go back to what we were talking about, the smaller, singular focused museums, a lot of people come here to the DC area and they do the Smithsonian Institute. And those are amazing and fascinating, but they're large and they're sometimes they're crowded. I stumbled upon a much smaller museum that blew me away called the Josiah Henson Museum mm -hmm. in Bethesda, Maryland. And that one is based on Josiah Henson, who is the inspiration for Uncle Tom's Cabin by Harriet Beecher Stowe. And he was a real person. I don't know why, but I didn't know this. And I didn't really know that Uncle Tom was a, I knew it was a stereotype created to deter us, but I didn't know it was associated with a real person. So it was really enlightening. And this is just down the street from my home. It's right, not far away. And it's a wealth of information and learning. I had someone on from the museum in Canada, and I didn't know about the one in Maryland. So thanks for sharing that. And that Uncle Tom, they changed the narrative on what that meant. I mean, saying or calling someone Uncle Tom meant that they were a sellout based on some of his history and his transporting of other enslaved individuals down south, when in fact he was very much an advocate and he escaped to freedom and brought his family along with him too. So there's just so many, uh, and this is the reason that Black history is so important so that these myths are dispelled or these incorrect narratives yeah. narratives are dispelled and that we get to learn the true. And like you said, you just learned that that was a real and not fictional character that it was based on. It really indicates the importance of Black history. But I didn't know about a museum for him in Maryland. And the docents there were amazing. One of them told me the reason why he did that transport of the enslaved people was because the slave master was holding his mother. Yeah. So if he were to fail on his mission, he may have never seen his mother again. Amazing. History is more amazing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it is amazing. And it really dots those travel experiences, the things that we learn. And not specifically Black history, but there's Black history in one of your posts that you did, Best U.S. Women's History oh, Museums. Yes. Again, I hate to tout Maryland, but as the former home of Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass is filled with Black history, and there is the Harriet Tubman Underground Railroad Museum in, I think, Eastern Maryland. And that one is amazing. It's like you learn about these historical figures and they're larger than life. But when you get there, when you first walk in, there's a statue, a bust of Miss Tubman, and she's a little bitty thing. So they told the docents, explain that this is how tall she was. And that just blew me away that this woman who's so big in my head, who was so short in stature, they had fascinating exhibits as well about her life, what life was like. And then it's right next to a nature preserve. So you get an idea of what it was like. It's like the mucky area where she used to catch the muskrat. And then it's right along the Underground Railroad Museum trails. I think there's an app you can listen to as you drive and stop and read. And the home of Frederick Douglass, before he moved to Baltimore to escape, there's a marker there. That plantation no longer exists, but there's a marker that you can stop and read it. It's just really fascinating. Yeah, again, these small places, the ones you don't often think about, because the big cities, they have the bigger <laughs> dollars for promotion and marketing. So those are the ones that we get exposed to the most. But it's these small ones, the ones we don't hear as much about. And you mentioned as well, let's talk about the importance of a docent, especially in one of these small museums. I like to read a lot of biographies because I'm a history wonk and a nerd. But the thing I love about them is that when you read a biography, it connects the histories. So it could be two different people at a, living at the same time and you don't know the connection. So to me, a docent is like giving you a biography and connecting the dots. So, you know, the docent, this little lady at the Josiah Henson Museum was excellent at telling us that his mom, that Josiah Henson suffered a major illness when he was separated from his mother. And he was pulled away from his mother and his mother, he remembers seeing her being kicked as they were being mm. separated as property. And just to tell that story, you, you hear about these stories of families being separated, 
but it was humanizing to hear that this separation from his mother caused him to be physically ill, so ill that he almost died. And the man who purchased him gave him back to his owner to be with his mother. Yeah. And I just think these docents really give us these stories that we may otherwise overlook if we have yes. to read them on our own. Because while I love history, when I get to museums, <laughs> I do kind of the quick scan of everything. And yeah. so I love docents because I'm very much connected to a storyteller. And these are people that really learn or are fascinated about the history of those specific people, events, or things that have happened. And so some of them are really great storytellers, and I'll be more inclined to stop and listen to them. But as I said, I'm a scanner yeah. when it comes to reading things at museums. Yes. And I know that your listeners are travel enthusiasts. So one place that really has my heart is my hometown in Miami. There's a place called the Historic Hampton House Motel, and it is a Green Book Hotel that was restored into mm. its former glory. It is beautiful. So if you're ever in Miami, Florida, you definitely want to check this place out. Martin Luther King stayed there. Malcolm X stayed there when he was with Cassius Clay at the time. Cassius Clay right before he fought and won the heavyweight title. And mm -hmm. that movie was depicted there. The Last Night. The oh, yeah. That, movie, that was depicted at that location. So if you're ever in Miami, you want to stop by the historic Hampton House to see a real life Green Book Hotel. Well, that just all sounds so wonderful. Any tips you can give us on curating maybe an itinerary where you want to make sure that you're visiting some of these Black history museums or sites? Well, wherever you're going, whatever the destination the city, I always plug in on Google, a quick Google search of Black history and that destination in the terms, the phrase that you're searching for. Even if you're going to a national park, the National Park Service has a great cache of places you can visit within their national parks that have Black history or Indigenous people's history, that sites that are significant. Yeah, well, certainly the National Park Service are the preservers of a lot of these sites and they are part of them. Anything to kind of know about small museums that you should really prepare for? Some things may not be appropriate for children, depending on how you raise your children. There was a lot of explaining I had to do at the Jack Hadley Black History Museum. There was a lot of the caricatures of the mammy and all these stereotypes. There were actual artifacts like toasters or bread boxes. And that was difficult it was a difficult conversation. So sometimes when you're at a smaller venue, it's harder to shield your children when you're visiting with them. Mm. <laughs> so you just got to be ready to have the tough conversations, which is the purpose of going in the first place. It, it helps open the door to have these conversations about who they are or how they're perceived. That's where we had a conversation about W.B. Du Bois's double consciousness, who we are. We know who we are, but we also have to be considering how we're perceived by the world. Mm. Very interesting. What about hours of operation or anything like that? Do they typically differ from the bigger museums? Yes. So I was in Atlanta and I really wanted to go see the Apex Museum and they didn't have as many hours as the Civil Rights Museum. So I ended up missing that one. So I just make a note and I know that when I go back, I'll be more mindful of the time. So if you're looking to see a smaller museum, definitely check the times and the dates of their opening because of staffing issues. They might not be open as many days a week or as long during the day as you would like. Yeah. And do you typically have to reserve a spot for a docent or are they typically just there? In my experience, they're just there. Well, great. Takesha, thank you so much. It's been wonderful chatting with you and having you share your ideas, your experiences. And certainly it's people like you that do some of that legwork for us and make it a lot easier. Yeah, yeah. I'm here for it. I'm here for it. <laughs> so what is your webpage? Because you have some wonderful blogs that really outline your experiences. Oh, thank you. My website is mamawanderlust.com and that's spelled M-O-M-M-A-W-A-N-D-E-R-L-U-S-T.com. Well, I tell you, folks, once you get on the website and you start clicking through all of the blog posts, I just love how you have them laid out. And Thank it's you. just one after another. It's kind of like when that show ends and the next one begins before the commercial comes on and it gets you locked in. So it's wonderfully presented. And again, thank you so much for sharing your ideas and your experiences and your family with us. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. 
Well, when I come back, I've got the Culture Report. I'm Javon Harley, the Traveling Culturati on Sirius XM 141, HUR Voices. The world is a book, and those who do not travel read only a page. See the world with Advantage International. Advantage specializes in group travel and offers group trips to top destinations around the world. Join an existing group or have a travel specialist at Advantage design that special trip for your organization, family, school, or church. Go to Advantage-INTL.com for a current trip or call Advantage at 1-877-428-2773. This is Traveling Culturati. We explore cultures and destinations. We share travel news and travel tips to keep you well-informed and prepared for your next travel adventure. So go ahead and up your travel game with Traveling Culturati. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Welcome back to the Traveling Culturati. I'm your host and travel pro, Javon Harley. Make sure you head on over to the website, TravelingCulturati.com. And don't forget to sign up for the Travel Club because we go to some fantastic places already this year. We've been to Paris and Croatia and South Africa and Ghana, and we have much more to come for 2023. And we're already planning for 2024. So make sure you are the first to know when we're on the go and sign up for the Travel Club. Culture is forever changing and reflecting what's happening in the society and with its people. It can be born of the arts, music, food, and sometimes politics and strife. This is the Culture Report. And I'm super excited to have my guests on today because it's what we like to do, a cultural experience and an immersive travel experience at a destination, but also Black history and history. We love to do it all. And so that's why I'm super excited to have on Franklin Cozy Gay and Peter Cole. Franklin is a volunteer as co-director for the Chicago Race Riot of 1919 Commemoration Project and director of a hospital-based violence intervention program at the University of Chicago Medicine. And Peter Cole is co-director as well of the Chicago Race Riot of 1990 Commemoration Project and a professor of history. And Peter, professor of history, can you say where? Of course, I teach at Western Illinois University, which is in Macomb, Illinois, about four hours southwest of Chicago. Tell us about the Chicago Race Riot of 1919. Thank you. I'm going to defer to our historian so he can tell a little bit of the story and, and how he founded the project and then how it connected to me. Thanks, Franklin. So in 1919, the year after World War One had come to an end, there was incredible racial tension in many American cities, in part due to the existing racism in the country, but also due to what became known as the first great migration of African Americans out of the South into cities in the industrial North and Midwest. And in the summer of 1919, there was several dozen so-called race riots in which generally mobs of white people attacked random black people. And that included in the city of Chicago in late July 1919, when five black children were swimming in Lake Michigan and swam across an invisible line in the lake and were punished for that so-called crime when a white man on the beach threw rocks at these children and killed a 17-year-old black male named Eugene Williams. The killing of Eugene Williams for what we would call swimming while black launched was the spark of the Chicago race riot, which resulted in 38 people being killed and over 500 injured and over a thousand left homeless over the course of a week of violence. Still the worst episode of racial violence in the history of the city of Chicago. And if you don't know about it, that's not surprising. In fact, the average person on the street doesn't know about this history either. And that's why we created this project, right? Like uh, to sort of uplift this history because so many people are unaware of it, despite its importance. And despite the fact that to this very day in Chicago, a city well known or notorious for its residential segregation, that was in no small part due to the events of 1919. Tell us a little bit more about the commemoration project. So I have a public health background and I currently work through this hospital based violence intervention program. But in the past, my work has focused on prevention programs at the school level, family level, but also community level. And it was actually between 2015 and 2021, I was helping support a community-led 
what they call a collective impact project that was led by Pastor Chris Harris out of a community-based organization and church called Bright Star Community Outreach. And there were four pillars connected to that work. One of the pillars was around social justice and equity. And it was in a space, a working group connected to that, that one of our committee members through the Greater Bronzeville Community Action Council introduced us to Peter and was talking about Peter's experiences in terms of how Germany commemorates the victims of the Holocaust through public art in which their Stoper Steiner project, which are basically brass bricks that are embedded in sidewalks at the last known residence of a victim of the Holocaust, that Chicago should be grappling with the same for the same reasons that Peter mentioned. With someone as a public health background, Emerging public health really focuses on addressing root causes of violence as opposed to just looking at what's at the surface, in particular community level violence that is often stigmatized in a city like Chicago. And it was very important then the connection when I met Peter that I said, we absolutely need to do something like this in Chicago, because unfortunately, our individuals, particularly our youth, families that raise the youth, communities in which they come from are often unfairly stigmatized connected to the impact that they have in terms of factors that have served as barriers to promoting healthy, violent-free communities. And it's very important that we unpack and unveil this history as a way to move forward, to move away from stigmas. And so using a public art project, first of all, just promoting and acknowledging the role that the race riots serve as an origin story for segregation practices, but also how they remain durable a century later is incredibly important. And so Peter and I both, when we connected, we immediately found out that we love cycling as well. And so what's different than maybe lecturing to a group is actually cycling and going through the areas, uplifting not just the areas where incidents happened that were connected to the race riots, but also people and institutions that represent resistance to those oppressive forces, because there needs to be balance, not just a story that's focused on deficits, but also strengths. And so this project highlights institutions like the Chicago Defender, individuals like Ida B. Wells, institutions like Roberts Temple, which is where Mammy Till decided to have an open casket memorial for her son Emmett Till to show what racism did to her son, which served as a catalyst for the civil rights movement in the mid-1950s. And so it was that work that helped with the mobilization campaign to bring awareness But just like Peter was inspired by what he saw in Germany, we knew that we needed to have a public art campaign to engage those that maybe wouldn't be able to come to a lecture, read a book, or even participate in a bike tour. But what ways can we engage people who might not be looking to be engaged? And what we did is that we connected with a art studio that focuses on serving survivors of traumatic events, particularly Black youth, Black and brown youth from across the South and West sides, which have been durably exposed to violence for the past 50 years, using glass blowing as a method of recovery. We worked with them through their project called Project Fire out of Firebird Community Arts to be our artists, to work with us to install that art that would be embedded in the locations where 38 individuals were killed in the Chicago race riots. What I find so important and special about combining a physical activity as well as art, something that's creative, is that you're providing something that is cathartic at the same time. You're providing this information because, as you mentioned so often, it's at a lecture. And then we leave a lecture and we don't often know what to do with those feelings with the information that we've just received. I just saw, yes, I'll admit on TikTok, but it's not making it any less important, but a piece from Dr. Joy DeGruy, if I'm pronouncing her name correctly, who was talking about post-traumatic slave syndrome. And all of these are really connected in that. But being able to do something physical, something that you can hear and learn the information, but at the same time, something that's cathartic and maybe even giving you a tool at the same time to process the information that you're hearing. So kudos, because my husband, Gene Harley, who's also the executive producer of the show, truly enjoyed the bike ride that he did to 
visit some of the spots and learn the history at the same time and doing something that he loves, which is cycling. So let's talk a little bit about the bike tour and some of the stops and how that all plays out here in Chicago. First of all, thank you for uplifting Dr. Joy DeGruz's work. And thanks to our partner, Saida Segovia Taylor, through Organic Oneness, we've actually brought in Dr. Joy DeGruz as a part of that campaign around social justice and equity. So I really appreciate that. So we're all aligned with the importance and the messages that she has conveyed in terms of how we grapple with trauma. We like to begin our tour. This has been our fifth tour. And I want to say three out of the five times we highlight by beginning at what the Chicago Defender coined as the vortex of violence. So what does that mean? That meant within a nine block radius of an intersection that's near 35th Street and Wabash, which was approximately the majority of the victims of violence happened within that nine block radius. So we start there. That happens to be next door to where Richard J. Daly went to high school. Richard M. Daly went to high school. Why am I bringing up their names? Well, in 1919, Richard J. Daly was a 17-year-old, just like Eugene Williams was. Eugene Williams, of course, was murdered for swimming in white waters, quote unquote, white waters. In 1955 through 1975, Richard J. Daly would become the mayor. In 1989 to 2009, his son, Richard M. Daly, would become the mayor. That vortex of violence is next to a high school where they both went and also a high school that produced three additional mayors for the city of Chicago. And so when we talk about these structural issues, we highlight that across the street is the Chicago police headquarters. We highlight that role. And initially, our first stop after beginning there is the Chicago Defender. And we talk about the importance of Robert Abbott in terms of activating African-Americans, promoting them to leave Jim Crow South that was limiting their economic, their social mobility, their political mobility, and to come north as Robert Abbott had placed in the Chicago Defender, that it's a fight against injustices, racial justice in the world. We need to fight that and combat that. And that theme still exists today. I want to commend you on the project and keeping history alive. Thank you for coming up with the program and making it so interactive. How can one find out more information and stay connected to know about your upcoming events? We do have a mailing list. And so if anyone emails us at Chicago Race Riot 1919 at gmail.com. If you can't remember that email address, you might remember chicagoraceriot.org, which is our website, and you can find our email there. And we are on social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chicago Race Riot. So those are some ways that one can sort of find out what's going on with our project. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me today. Again, I'm chatting with Franklin Cozy Gay and Peter Cole, co-directors for the Chicago Race Riot of 1919 Commemoration Project. Thanks again for joining me. Thank you for the opportunity. We appreciate you. Ladies and gentlemen. This is Traveling Culturati. We explore cultures and destinations. We share travel news and travel tips to keep you well-informed and prepared for your next travel adventure. So go ahead and up your travel game with Traveling Culturati. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information.